lives and the truths that are at the heart of the gospel, that you'll renew our faith and commitment to them now this day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Elaine thinks that, that I've got a problem. Well, one particular problem. She thinks I've got quite a few, but one particular one. She thinks that I idolise Winston Churchill. Now, I don't think it goes that far, but I admit I am a fan. And I'm not the only one, because at the turn of the century, he was voted the greatest Briton in history. And I'm not surprised for what a man he was, what a life he lived. He was so sure of his own destiny, and he was courageous. Indeed, at times, he seemed to have what some would call a charmed life, what they, they have called a charmed life. For instance, just listen to, to Roy Jenkins' account from his autobiography, from his biography, sorry, of Churchill, of his escape from imprisonment by the Boers during the Boer War. This is what we read. First he walked through the town for half a mile until he struck a railway line which he hoped was the one east to Delagoa Bay. He wore a brown suit and a slouch hat and hoped that if he walked with confidence he would be unchallenged. His audacity paid off. Then he walked for two hours along the line until he came to a train station. His tactic was to jump on a train a short way out of the station just before it had gathered speed. This he accomplished with difficulty, partly because of having a dislocated shoulder. He was not particularly agile. He never gave me the impression ever of being particularly agile, but there you go. It was a goods train, mainly carrying empty coal bags back to the colliery area. Among them he enjoyed a comfortable, if sooty, sleep for a few hours. He was, however, awake to leave the train well before dawn. This again presented some difficulty. He bounced into a ditch and was lucky to suffer no laming injury. He had accomplished almost 80 miles and had another 200 to go. Throughout the next long day of South African summer, he wandered about, nervous of being seen and without much sustenance or plan. Then at 1.30 a.m. on the second night, he came to a colliery with substantial outbuildings. He decided mainly because he had no alternative to risk an appeal for help. Perhaps he could find someone who either out of sympathy or avarice, he was more than willing to spend his £75 worth about £3,750 today, Someone who would not turn him in to the Boer authorities, but would assist him on his way. He knocked at a door. This was his outstanding, almost miraculous piece of luck. The man who sleepily answered was an English mine manager, John Howard. Once Howard had busted Churchill's original wholly un unconvincing explanation and purpose, he took him in and fed him. Now, Churchill's further adventures here included a week down a mine shaft in the company of a troop of rats, and then a further dangerous train journey before finally arriving in Durban, where, we're told, he was given a resounding welcome and immediately found himself a figure of world fame. Now, now some would say that Churchill had a charmed life. They would say that he 
was lucky. Now, in the light of later events, particularly World War II, I have to say I would want to put things rather differently. And that is that the hand of God was on his life. Now, I have to say, as far as I'm aware, there's no evidence of any real deep personal faith commitment from Churchill. And yet, as was the case on more than one occasion in Scripture, and, has, and as has been the case in history, it seems that God used a man outside of the family of faith to achieve his purposes. But I mentioned Churchill now, though, because, you know, it came to me as I was looking and studying this passage, how many similarities there actually are between him and the Apostle Paul. Their courage, their drive, their energy, their perseverance. That at times they, they both tended to be impetuous and, and blunt, but that when emotion ebbed, they were ready to be compassionate and forgiving. But what above all, I believe, they had in common was an ability more than that, a genius that enabled them to see the issue, that enabled them to see what was really actually at stake when all around them good men, even great men, could not see. For Churchill saw so clearly the dangers of Hitler and of trying to appease him. And so too the Apostle Paul saw the danger here in Acts. For what we have here in Acts 15 is a real climax and, and turning point in this book. For here, an, an issue that has been simmering away in the, the life of the church, here it finally comes to the boil. And from this moment on, the church was never the same. This was a defining moment, not just in the early church, but for the whole church, right down through history. Let's look at this then, beginning first by looking at the issue. The issue. And the issue really revolves around a group of men that are commonly called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. They're referred to here in Acts 15.1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. With this, I believe, tying in with what we, we read in Galatians 2.12, certain men, it says, came from James. These men then came from Jerusalem and they claimed the support of James, the brother of Jesus, who was at this time prominent among the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, I say uh, claimed the support of James because later events make it seem very unlikely that they actually had his support. What seems much more likely is that James was undecided on this issue, that he wasn't sure. So then he said little, and they then took his silence and his hesitance as agreement with them, and they then claimed his influential support against their opponents, primarily Paul. Now, I've personally experienced something a little bit like this. A number of years ago, I knew a rather eccentric Christian lady who now and again was inclined to make outlandish comments. When I was with her, I, I tried just to say little and kind of ease her on to, to other topics. I thought that was the safest thing to do. And then I found out she was going around continuing to make these comments and then adding, David Wilson thinks this too. 
or even David Wilson says. She actually put her words into my mouth. From that point on, I always made sure that I gently made my own position clear to her. And I have to say this dented my popularity quite a bit, but it saved me from an awful lot of embarrassment. What was the issue at stake here, though? It's one that's already raised its head on more than one occasion in the book of Acts. It's the fact that that Paul and Peter were accepting Gentiles as Christians, accepting them as saved, simply on the basis of their faith in Jesus. And they were then baptizing them. These Judaizers, though, these determinedly Jewish Christians, primarily it would seem of the, the party of the Pharisees, They wanted circumcision and they wanted obedience to the law added to the equation. That before a man can be saved, that as well as faith in Jesus, he must be willing to submit to circumcision and commit himself to obedience to the law of Moses. Now we can see from what we read in Galatians 2 from verse 11, that the the arguments that were put forward by these men initially had an impact on many. For Peter, even Peter, we are told in Galatians 2, because of this, began to withdraw from fellowship and particularly from eating with Gentiles. Now, you see, there was a definite logic going on here because to a Jew, a Gentile who did not observe the law, the the, the laws of ritual cleanliness, well, it wasn't only them that was unclean. But any food that they touched, anything that they prepared, any food that they served, that was also unclean. So you see, a Jewish Christian who continued to be governed by the law couldn't sit down and share a meal with a Gentile brother or sister in Christ. With this having one particularly hurtful and divisive element to it, and that is that they couldn't break bread together. That they couldn't share in fellowship together around the Lord's table. It's interesting, though, that it says in Galatians that Peter withdrew from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. You see, it seems that that like James, that in the same kind of way, he was undecided. He wasn't wholly convinced by these men's arguments, but that in some way, probably because of the power of their personalities, that he was intimidated by these men. So you see, even then, in the converted and spirit-filled Peter, still the remnants of the old Peter, with his tendency to crumble under pressure, still lingers on. And you know, sadly, that's the way it is for all of us even in Christ. The new has arrived, the Spirit has come into our lives, but the remnant of that old self still lingers on and has to continually be battled with. Here, though, the the combination of the arguments of these men and probably Peter's example, this influenced many other Jewish Christians to join him including even loving and caring, generous-hearted Barnabas, even the most open-hearted of men, even he was persuaded that he had to separate himself 
from his Gentile brothers and sisters, many of whom that we know that he'd personally been involved in sharing the gospel with, who he'd personally been involved in seeing come to faith, and undoubtedly, because of what we know of this man, who he loved with all his heart. There was one, though, that was not influenced. There was one. Paul, rather, he was outraged by this. Because he and he alone sees what's really at stake. He alone sees what this issue is really about. And he sees what it could lead to. That this is an attack on grace. That this is an attack on salvation by faith in Christ alone. This is an attack on the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. On the uniqueness of that sacrifice. The Son of God offered up as the perfect sacrifice, paying for all sin and all our imperfection. As you see, what this does is this brings the law back in to salvation. This is a return to the same fatal misunderstanding of the law that had enslaved the Jews for centuries because the law had never been meant to be seen as the way to salvation. It had never been meant to be that. That was always about faith in the grace of God. Now the law had been given as a guide to show us how the saved should live, the kind of holy life they can live and should live that pleases God and that reflects something of the character of God our Father. But you see, if you bring the law and things like circumcision into salvation, that then makes salvation again a work. That then leads to human pride and self-righteousness and sin. Now, if agreed to, this would then have led to a perverted Christianity that was just another sect of a failing and doomed Judaism. And if the church had instead fallen out over this, going their different ways, Jewish Christians going one way, Gentile Christians going the other way, then this would have led to a divided church, to a weakened church, to a confused and confusing church. You know, if they don't know what they believe, then what are we to believe? A church that could never have conquered the world with the gospel of grace. Paul, though, you see, he sees what, what's at stake. He sees that it's the glory of Christ that's at stake. He sees that it's the future of the church that's at stake. And so Paul confronts Peter and Barnabas. Now in Acts and Galatians, we obviously only have the bare bones of what went on here, for this would seem to be a controversy that went on over a fair period of time and that perhaps stretched over a number of visits we don't know to and from Jerusalem to Antioch. But from what we read here in Acts 15.2 of Barnabas, that he joined with Paul in taking these men on. And from what we read later of, of Peter's words in the council of Jerusalem, well, it's obvious that both these men, over time, that they were convinced by Paul's argument and that they were repentant towards God of what they'd done. So with them now on his side, we move from the issue to the resolution. 
to the resolution of this issue at the first great council of the church at Jerusalem. Now, you know, looking at this, I think Luke was the kind of succinct minute taker who would have made a great church secretary. For he summarizes the first part of this meeting with three words. After much discussion. How many deacons meetings and church meetings have I read that? Which usually means after a considerable period of fairly heated argy-bargy that had got them nowhere, he then goes on to the three significant contributions to this debate. First, Peter. Peter, who is the rock chosen by Jesus, was a really significant figure in the church, particularly in the Jerusalem church. And what he had to say to this gathering here basically had two different sides to it. His experience and their experience. And his experience was not that he'd been chosen to go to the Gentiles. Not, sorry, it was not that he had chosen to go to the Gentiles, but that he'd been led by God to go to them. And it was God who had chosen the Gentiles. He says, verse 7, Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And then Peter witnessed God's demonstration of his acceptance of the Gentiles by sending his spirit on them as he had with the Jews in response to their faith, not to their merit, not their obedience to the law, not their goodness, but in response to their faith in Jesus. Verse 8 and 9. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. That was his experience. An experience that all of these Jewish Christians there were aware of. That it had been God who had led him to the Gentiles. And that it had been God who had shown his acceptance of the Gentiles by sending his spirit upon them in answer to their faith. That was his experience. And their experience, well their experience, Peter makes clear, was that the law had failed them. Repeatedly, either they failed to obey it, or when they did obey it, that then led to the sin of pride that more than obliterated any possible righteousness. So he says, you know, that if the law had failed for them, if it had failed for the Jews, if the law had been a burden upon them, then why should they then lay that on the Gentiles? Peter's position, earlier clarified for him by Paul, is that they shouldn't. Verse 11, he says, No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The next significant contribution to this debate comes from Barnabas and Paul. And they simply build on what Peter has said. Because everyone knows the gospel they preach, these foremost missionaries to the Gentiles. Everyone knows that it's a gospel focused on the grace of God and the glory of Christ. Well, this gospel, 
has led to the salvation of many Gentiles, was confirmed and validated by God by his signs and wonders. God showed his approval of what they said and what they did. That which everyone knew was God honoring. The final contributor is James, James, the brother of Jesus, obviously the chairman of this meeting and eventually foremost among the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Well, you see, if James was undecided before, then his first words here let the people know that he's now made his mind up. For in his opening statement, the phrase that he uses there, of the Gentiles, about God taking, verse 14, from the Gentiles, a people for himself, This was a phrase that was regularly used in the Old Testament of Israel, of the people of God. So already in these first words of this opening sentence, James has made his position now crystal clear that believing Gentiles, by the virtue of their faith and their faith alone, are now part of the people of God, of the family of God. But then he adds... The clinching word, literally the clinching word, for quoting Amos 9, 11, and 12 and using a, a Greek translation that would, that would bring out the truth that he wanted to highlight just as clearly as could be. He points out that the word of God, that the prophets foretold what they're now experiencing, that the experience that Peter and Paul and Barnabas now claim Gentiles, by faith, coming into the fullness of God's salvation, that this is confirmed by the teaching of God's prophetic word. For this passage that's quoted in verse 16 to 18 here that talks of David's fallen tent being rebuilt and restored, this is seen to be a reference to Christ. Jesus, who was of the line of David, who was dead, who was crucified, who seemed to be ruined, but who God raised from the dead, who was rebuilt, restored, and who became the means by faith in whom that the remnant of belief in Israel, and we go on, the Gentiles who believe might find salvation, might become together a new people of God, A new people, the church, united, one in him. Verse 17, that the remnant of men, believing Jews, may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name. Well, James is convinced. And the rest of the meeting with him, the decision of the leadership, is unanimous. Paul's argument has won the day. For the Gentiles too, Jesus is enough. Believe in faith in God's grace offered in Christ is enough. They don't need to add to this faith, circumcision or obedience to the law or anything else in order to be saved, to be one of the people of God. But, Having made this decision, there then comes that which many find perplexing, if not downright contradictory and inconsistent. 
And that is that James then adds to this letter that he wants the Gentiles to receive, that he, he sends to the Gentiles four abstentions. He announces his decision, then he sends a letter with four abstentions related to this law that he wants the Gentiles to agree to. And then if you move a little bit further on in Acts 16, 1 to 5, there you read of Paul having a young man, Timothy, a a young man of mixed Jewish-Gentile parentage, having him circumcised before he took him with him on mission. Well, isn't this inconsistent? Isn't this totally contradictory? Well, actually... It isn't. Rather, if we take this into the context of the wider teaching of the Bible, this is actually totally consistent. Teaching such as that which we find in 1 Corinthians 9.20, where Paul says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the law. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And also what it says in in Romans 14 about taking into account the weaker brother, those of tender conscience. You see, the situation here is that the principle has been agreed. The principles agreed that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to observe the intricacies of Jewish law, though of course they do have to live holy lives, but they don't have to do these things in order to be saved. However, in practice, in the short term, this is what this is getting at. In certain cultures, they can choose to do certain things for the sake of those with particular hang-ups. So you see, the abstentions mentioned in this letter that James sent out are all all in one way or another mainly tied up with, with Jewish food laws. What he's saying then is, please, for the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, those who come from that particular culture and that background, those who have these customs ingrained into them, please, don't do that which would be repulsive to them. Don't do that, which would make it very difficult for them to eat with you and especially to share fellowship with you around the Lord's table. Please, you don't have to, but choose not to do that. And Paul's circumcision of Timothy, well, you see, born as he was of of a mixed parentage, Timothy had the great potential in ministry and mission of an open door to both communities. However, uncircumcised, he would not have been accepted in Jewish society. And in some of the stricter circles within Judaism, he might even have been considered illegitimate and so totally beyond the pale. For the sake then of the sensibilities of those Jews. In order that Timothy might gain access to them and therefore be able to share the gospel with them, Paul asked Timothy 
to be circumcised. Timothy agrees to be circumcised. He chooses to be circumcised. But he doesn't have to be circumcised. Because you see, the principle has been agreed that Gentiles too are saved on the basis of their faith in God's grace in Christ. Nothing else needed, nothing else to be added, ever. Nothing else. Well, I want to finish now just very briefly with the application, with the lessons that I believe uh, that we can learn from what we find here. First, I would say that with Paul, with James, with Peter, let's always insist on the fundamentals, on the principles of the faith. Things like the nature of God and of Christ, the being of the Spirit, the basis of salvation, the need for a believer to live a godly life. We need to insist on the key things. But then, let's also show charity, love and understanding to one another on the non-fundamentals. The non-essentials. And this goes, I think, two different ways. Let's seek to be charitable to those of maybe wider and perhaps narrower outlooks than ours. We don't have to agree with one another about the way we live out every detail of the Christian life. And we can tell one another where we don't agree. We can. But let's always be loving. Let's always seek to be understanding. Let's always be generous in attitude towards others. Second, and we're going to focus in a bit here, let's be particularly careful with regard to new converts, to recent additions to the church. You see, the Jews here, they had their background, they had their culture, they had their lifestyle. And what they did was that they mixed all this up with the fundamentals of the faith and they then tried to, to foist it as one package on the Gentiles. And as we've said, if they'd succeeded, they would have made the Gentile church into a sect of Judaism. And they would largely have cut themselves off from any meaningful evangelistic contact with their Gentile neighbors. And the church then would have been crippled, if not doomed. It would never have had the worldwide impact that it did. I want to say to you today that we too have to be careful that we don't do the same with our new converts. That when people come to Christ, we don't foist upon them a kind of evangelical lifestyle package that will cut them off from meaningful contact with their non-Christian friends and neighbours. Of course, we want them to live close to Christ. They must. Of course, we want them to live godly lives apart from sin. But that doesn't mean that they can't have hobbies and that they can't socialize, that they can't spend time with the non-Christians around them. I mean, if we don't spend time with non-Christians, how are we ever going to evangelize them? And as I've said before, the essence of worldliness isn't about places that we go to, isn't about people that we meet and share with. The essence of worldliness is an issue of the heart. That's where it's at. Is Jesus Lord of our heart, Lord of my mind? Is he? Because you see, if he is, 
then we will know where we can go, what we can do. Now, we've got to get it right here. We've got to make sure that Jesus is Lord. But I want to say to you, let us as a church seek to set people free. Free to really live the Christian life, the life of grace, the life of freedom, the full and abundant life. Set Christians free to live that life and in so doing, share Jesus. That was Paul's priority. James's priority. Peter's priority. That was the priority of the early church from Acts 15 on. May it be today our priority too. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you 